Chapter 4 The Red Sea In the course of the day of the 29th of January, the island of Ceylon disappeared under the horizon, and the Nautilus, at a speed of 20 miles an hour, slid into the labyrinth of canals which separate the Maldives from the Lacadives. It coasted even the island of Kiltan, a land originally Madreporic, discovered by Vasco da Gama in 1499, and one of the 19 principal islands of the Lacadive archipelago, situated between 10 degrees and 44 degrees north latitude, and 69 degrees 50 minutes 72 seconds east longitude. We had made 16,220 miles, or 7,500 French leagues, from our starting point in the Japanese seas. The next day, 30th of January, when the Nautilus went to the surface of the ocean, there was no land in sight. Its course was north-northeast, in the direction of the Sea of Oman, between Arabia and the Indian Peninsula, which serves as an outlet to the Persian Gulf. It was evidently a block without any possible egress. Where was Captain Nemo taking us to? I could not say. This, however, did not satisfy the Canadian, who that day came to me asking where we were going. We are going where our captain's fancy takes us, Master Ned. His fancy cannot take us far, then, said the Canadian. The Persian Gulf has no outlet, and if we do go in, it will not be long before we are out again. Very well, then, we will come out again, Master Ned, and if after the Persian Gulf the Nautilus would like to visit the Red Sea, the streets of Bab el-Mandeb are there to give us entrance. I need not tell you, sir, said Ned Land, that the Red Sea is as much closed as the Gulf, as the Isthmus of Suez is not yet cut and if it was, a boat as mysterious as ours would not risk itself in a canal cut with sluices. And again, the Red Sea is not the road to take us back to Europe. But I never said we were going back to Europe. What do you suppose, then? I suppose that after visiting the curious coasts of Arabia and Egypt, the Nautilus will go down the Indian Ocean again, perhaps cross the Channel of Mozambique, perhaps off the Mascarenas, so as to gain the Cape of Good Hope. And once at the Cape of Good Hope? asked the Canadian, with peculiar emphasis. Well, we shall penetrate into that Atlantic which we do not yet know. Our friend Ned, you are getting tired of this journey under the sea. You are surfeited with the incessantly varying spectacle of submarine wonders. For my part, I shall be sorry to see the end of a voyage which it is given to so few men to make. For four days till the 3rd of February, the Nautilus scoured the Sea of Oman at various depths and various speeds. It seemed to go at random, as if hesitating as to which road it should follow, but we never passed the dropping of cancer. In quitting this sea, we sighted Muscat for an instant, one of the most important towns of the country of Oman. I admired its strange aspect, surrounded by black rocks upon which its white houses and forts stood in relief. I saw the rounded domes of its mosques, the elegant points of its minarets, its fresh and verdant terraces, but it was only a vision. The Nautilus soon sank under the waves of that part of the sea. We passed along the Arabian coast of Mara and Hadramant for a distance of six miles, its undulating line of mountains being occasionally relieved by some ancient ruin. The 5th of February we at last entered the Gulf of Aden, a perfect funnel introduced into the neck of Bab el-Mandeb, through which the Indian waters enter the Red Sea. The 6th of February the Nautilus floated in sight of Aden, perched upon a promontory which a narrow isthmus joins to the mainland, a kind of inaccessible Gibraltar, the fortifications of which were rebuilt by the English after taking possession in 1839. I caught a glimpse of the octagon minarets of this town, which was at one time, according to the historian Edrisi, the richest commercial magazine on the coast. 
I certainly thought that Captain Nemo, arrived at this point, would back out again, but I was mistaken, for he did no such thing, much to my surprise. The next day, the 7th of February, we entered the Straits of Bab el-Mandeb, the name of which in the Arab tongue means the Gate of Tears. To twenty miles in breadth, it is only thirty-two in length, and for the Nautilus, starting at full speed, the crossing was scarcely the work of an hour. But I saw nothing, not even the island of Perim, which the British government has fortified the position of Aden with. There were too many English or French steamers of the line of Suez to Bombay, Calcutta to Melbourne, and from Bourbon to the Mauritius, furrowing this narrow passage for the Nautilus to venture to show itself, so it remained prudently below. At last, about noon, we were in the waters of the Red Sea. I would not even seek to understand the caprice which had decided Captain Nemo upon entering the Gulf, but I quite approved of the Nautilus entering it. Its speed was lessened, sometimes it kept on the surface, sometimes it dived to avoid a vessel, and thus I was able to observe the upper and lower parts of this curious sea. The 8th of February, from the first dawn of day, Mocha came in sight, now a ruined town whose walls would fall at a gunshot, yet which shelters here and there some verdant date trees. Once an important city, containing six public markets and twenty-six mosques, and whose walls, defended by fourteen forts, formed a girdle of two miles in circumference. The Nautilus then approached the African shore, where the depth of the sea was greater. There, between two waters clear as crystal, through the open panels we were allowed to contemplate the beautiful bushes of brilliant coral, and large blocks of rock clothed with a splendid fur of green algae and fuki. What an indescribable spectacle, and what variety of sights and landscapes along those sandbanks and volcanic islands which bound the Libyan coast. But where these shrubs appeared in all their beauty was on the eastern coast, which the Nautilus soon gained. It was on the coast of Tahama, for there not only did this display of zoophytes flourish beneath the level of the sea, but they also formed picturesque interlacings which unfolded themselves about sixty feet above the surface, more capricious but less highly coloured than those whose freshness were kept up by the vital power of the waters. What charming hours I passed thus at the window of the saloon! What new specimens of submarine flora and fauna did I admire under the brightness of our electric lantern! There grew sponges of all shapes, pediculated, foliated, globular and digital. They certainly justified the names of baskets, cups, distaffs, elk's horns, lion's feet, peacock's tails and Neptune's gloves, which had been given to them by the fishermen, greater poets than the savants. Other zoophytes which multiply near the sponges consist principally of medusae of a most elegant kind. The mollusks were represented by the varieties of the calmar, which, according to Orbini, are peculiar to the Red Sea, and reptiles by the Vergata turtle of the genus of Chelonae, which furnished a wholesome and delicate food for our table. As to the fish, they were abundant and often remarkable. The following are those which the nets of the Nautilus brought more frequently on board. Rays of a red brick colour, with bodies marked with blue spots and easily recognisable by their double spikes. Some superb caranxes, marked with seven transverse bands of jet black blue and yellow fins, and gold and silver scales, mullets with yellow heads, gobies, and a thousand other species common to the ocean which we had just traversed. The 9th of February, the Nautilus floated in the broadest part of the Red Sea, which is comprised between Suekin, on the west coast, and Kumfada, on the east coast, with a diameter of 90 miles. That day at noon, after the bearings were taken, Captain Nemo mounted the platform where I happened to be, and I was determined not to let him go down again with at least pressing him regarding his ulterior projects. As soon as he saw me, he approached, 
and graciously offered me a cigar. Well, sir, does this Red Sea please you? Have you sufficiently observed the wonders it covers, its fissures, its zoophytes, its parterres of sponges and its forests of coral? Did you catch a glimpse of the towns on its borders? Yes, Captain Nemo, I replied, and the Nautilus is wonderfully fitted for such a study. Ah, oh, it is such an intelligent boat. Yes, sir, intelligent and invulnerable. It fears neither the terrible tempests of the Red Sea, nor its currents, nor its sandbanks. Certainly, said I, this sea is quoted as one of the worst, and in the time of the ancients, if I am not mistaken, its reputation was detestable. Detestable, Monsieur Aronnax. The Greek and Latin historians do not speak favourably of it, and Strabo says it is very dangerous during the Etesian winds and in the rainy season. The Arabian Adrisi portrays it under the name of the Gulf of Kolzum, and relates that vessels perished there in great numbers on the sandbanks, and that no one would risk sailing in the night. It is, he pretends, a sea subject to fearful hurricanes, strewn with inhospitable islands, and which offers nothing good either on its surface or in its depths. Such too is the opinion of Arian, Agathocides, and Artemidorus. One may see, I replied, that these historians never sailed on board the Nautilus. Just so, replied the captain, smiling. In that respect, moderns are not more advanced than the ancients. It required many ages to find out the mechanical power of steam. Who knows if, in another hundred years, we may not yet see a second Nautilus. Progress is slow, Monsieur Aronnax. It is true, I answered. Your boat is at least a century before its time, perhaps an era. What a misfortune that the secret of such an invention should die with its inventor. Captain Nemo did not reply. After some minutes' silence, he continued, You were speaking of the opinions of ancient historians upon the dangerous navigation of the Red Sea. It is true, said I, but were their fears not exaggerated? Yes and no, Monsieur Aronnax, replied Captain Nemo, who seemed to know the Red Sea by heart. That which is no longer dangerous for a modern vessel, well-rigged, strongly built, and master of its own course, thanks to obedient steam, offered all sorts of perils to the ships of the ancients. Picture to yourself those first navigators, venturing in ships made of planks, sewn with the cords of the palm tree, saturated with the grease of the sea-dog, and covered with powdered resin. They had not even instruments wherewith to take their bearings, and they went by guess amongst currents of which they scarcely knew anything. Under such conditions shipwrecks were, and must have been, numerous. But in our time steamers running between Suez and the South Seas have nothing more to fear from the fury of this gulf, in spite of contrary trade winds. The captain and passengers do not prepare for their departure by offering propitiatory sacrifices, and on their return they no longer go ornamented with wreaths and gilt fillets to thank the gods in the neighbouring temple. I agree with you, said I, and steam seems to have killed all gratitude in the hearts of sailors. But, Captain, since you seem to have especially studied this sea, can you tell me the origin of its name? There exist several explanations on the subject, Monsieur Aronnax. Would you like to know the opinion of a chronicler of the 14th century? Willingly. This fanciful writer pretends that its name was given to it after the passage of the Israelites, when Pharaoh perished in the waves which closed at the voice of Moses. A poet's explanation, Captain Nemo, I replied, but I cannot content myself with that. I ask you for your personal opinion. Here it is, Monsieur Aronnax. According to my idea, we must see in this appellation of the Red Sea a translation of the Hebrew word Edom, and if the ancients gave it that name, it was on account of the peculiar colour of its waters. But up to this time I've seen nothing but transparent waves and without any particular colour. Very likely, but as we advance to the bottom of the gulf, 
you will see this singular appearance. I remember seeing the bay of Tor entirely red like a sea of blood. And you attribute this colour to the presence of a microscopic seaweed? Yes. It is mucilaginous by purple matter, produced by the little restless plants known by the name of trichodesmia, and of which it requires 40,000 to occupy the space of a square point four of an inch. Perhaps we shall meet some when we get to Tor. So, Captain Nemo, it is not the first time you have overrun the Red Sea on board the Nautilus. No, sir. As you spoke a while ago of the passage of the Israelites, and of the catastrophe to the Egyptians, I will ask whether you have met with any traces under the water of this great historical fact. No, sir, and for a very good reason. What is it? It is that the spot where Moses and his people passed is now so blocked up with sand that the camels can barely bathe their legs there. You can well understand that there would not be enough water for my nautilus. And the spot? I asked. The spot is situated a little above the Isthmus of Suez, in the arm which formerly made a deep estuary, when the Red Sea extended to the Salt Lakes. Now, whether their passage was miraculous or not, the Israelites nevertheless crossed there to reach the Promised Land, and Pharaoh's army perished precisely on that spot, and I think that excavations made in the middle of the sand would bring to light a large number of arms and instruments of Egyptian origin. That is evident, I replied, and for the sake of archaeologists, let us hope that these excavations will be made sooner or later, when new towns are established on the Isthmus, after the construction of the Suez Canal. A canal, however, very useless to a vessel like the Nautilus. Very likely, but useful to the whole world, said Captain Nemo. The ancients well understood the utility of a communication between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean for their commercial affairs, but they did not think of digging a canal direct, and took the Nile as an intermediate. Very probably the canal which united the Nile to the Red Sea was begun by Sestosis, if we may believe tradition. One thing is certain, that in the year 615 before Jesus Christ, Nikos undertook the works of an alimentary canal to the waters of the Nile, across the plain of Egypt, looking towards Arabia. It took four days to go up this canal, and it was so wide that two triremes could go abreast. It was carried on by Darius, the son of Histaspes, and probably finished by Ptolemy II. Strabo saw it navigated, but its decline from the point of departure in the Babastes to the Red Sea was so slight that it was only navigable for a few months in the year. This canal answered all commercial purposes to the age of Antoninus, when it was abandoned and blocked up with sand. Restored by order of the Caliph Omar, it was definitively destroyed in 761 or 762 by Caliph al-Mansur, who wished to prevent the arrivals of provisions to Muhammad ben Abdallah, who had revolted against him. During the expedition into Egypt, your General Bonaparte discovered traces of the works in the desert of Suez, and, surprised by the tide, he nearly perished before regaining Hadjaroth, at the very place where Moses had encamped three thousand years before him. Well, Captain, what the ancients dared not undertake, this junction between the two seas, which will shorten the road from Cadiz to India, Monsieur Lesseps has succeeded in doing, and before long he will have changed Africa into an immense island. Yes, Monsieur Aranax. You have the right to be proud of your countrymen. Such a man brings more honour to a nation than great captains. He began, like so many others, with disgust and rebuffs, but he has triumphed, for he has the genius of will. And it is sad to think that a work like that, which ought to have been an international work, and which would have sufficed to make a reign illustrious, should have been succeeded by the energy of one man. All honour to Monsieur Lesseps. Yes, honour to this great citizen, I replied, surprised by the manner in which Captain Nemo had just spoken. 
Unfortunately, he continued, I cannot take you through the Suez Canal, but you shall be able to see the long jetty of Port Said after tomorrow, when we shall be in the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean? I exclaimed. Yes, sir, does that astonish you? What astonishes me is to think that we shall be there the day after tomorrow. Indeed? Yes, Captain, although by this time I ought to have accustomed myself to be surprised at nothing since I've been on board your boat. But the cause of this surprise? Well, it is the fearful speed you will have to put on the Nautilus if the day after tomorrow she is to be in the Mediterranean, having made the round of Africa and doubled the Cape of Good Hope. Who told you that she should make the round of Africa and double the Cape of Good Hope, sir? Well, unless the Nautilus sails on dry land and passes above the Isthmus. Or beneath it, Monsieur Aronnax. Beneath it? Certainly, replied Captain Nemo quietly. A long time ago nature made under this tongue of land what man has this day made on its surface. What? Such a passage exists? Yes, a subterranean passage which I have named the Arabian Tunnel. It takes us beneath Suez and opens into the Gulf of Palacium. But this isthmus is composed of nothing but quicksands. To a certain depth, but at fifty-five yards only there is a solid layer of rock. Did you discover this passage by chance? I asked, more and more surprised. Chance and reasoning, sir, and by reasoning even more than by chance. Not only does this passage exist, but I have profited by it several times. Without that I should not have ventured this day into the impassable Red Sea. I noticed that in the Red Sea and in the Mediterranean there existed a certain number of fishes of a kind perfectly identical. Ophidia, Fiatoles, Javelles, and Excoetiae. Certain of that fact, I asked myself, was it possible that there was no communication between the two seas? If there was, the subterranean current must necessarily run from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean, from the sole cause of difference of level. I caught a large number of fishes in the neighbourhood of Suez. I passed a copper ring through their tails and threw them back in the sea. Some months later, on the coast of Syria, I caught some of my fish ornamented with the ring. Thus the communication between the two was proved. I then sought for it with my Nautilus. I discovered it, ventured into it, and before long, sir, you too will have passed through my Arabian tunnel.